Welcome to Crushing It, a podcast with notes of knowledge, hints of hilarity, fun forward, and super cheesy, which always pairs well with wine. That's good. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of class goes a long way. That's all I'm saying. It's really pleasurable mouthfeel. On a scale of like prison hooch to a Willamette Valley sunrise, I would rate this. A solid seven. Girl knows what she wants. <laughs> they need to put wine in pounders. I'd like to get my hands on that Methuselah. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh shit about this wine. <laughs> uh, I have some pretzels here if I get snacky. So if there's crunching <laughs> that happens on this podcast, because I am going to eat. Yes, please opening do. a bottle of Prosecco. Oh, yes. Dang. Uh, nice dry Prosecco. And it's a frizzante, so it's not like a fully charged Prosecco. So it, it's it's nice and lightly bubbly. I've, I've gotten in the habit of having um, this really nice dry Prosecco. And uh, this is not soy sauce. This is, uh, this is uh, creme de cassis. And I make Cure Royales. Have you, you guys like Cure Royale? I don't even, I've never even had something like that. So Cure Ooh. Royale is just, I like doing it out of the soy sauce thing. Because it's the right amount. Uh, Cure Royale is just creme de cassis and sparkling wine. And it sounds fancy and that's a cocktail. And wow, look at that. There we go. Now I'm ready. Uh, sounds a lot fancier than it is. Are you ready for story time, Thomas? Totally. Here we are with Thomas Hausman. <laughs> Carly, Woo! how do we Woo! know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, were you about to ask, how do we know Thomas? <laughs> I was. Because every single episode, the answer is the same. All 50 episodes so far. <laughs> we know Thomas, <laughs> they're on me. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thomas is the former winemaker for Anami Vineyard. So I got to work with him for almost 10 years. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. I know Thomas. And um, now he has traveled <laughs> onward <laughs> to explore new wine regions for us. But he was kind enough to come back to our Willamette Valley podcast. Thanks for coming, Thomas. Of course. Thank you guys for inviting me. He's kind Absolutely. of here. He's kind of here under duress, but <laughs> he's got Prosecco. He's happy. <laughs> and we have wine that Thomas made, so we're happy. Oh, that's fun. What are you guys drinking? What do we have? 2014 Two Estates? Two Estates 2014. We thought I, I, recently it's it's in a nice place right now. It is. It is really nice. Yes. But I know that you didn't have a favorite estate, so I thought maybe we should drink two estates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. All right, Thomas, we have two missions in our um, conversation this evening. Uh, the first is to hear your story, how you came to be in wine and uh, the adventures within. And the second then is for you to school us a little bit on um, screw tops versus corks and why people make the decision and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. I'm up for that. 
I'm just letting you know I'm in the you know I'm in the wilds. I'm on the very tip of the old Mission Peninsula, and so you can't get really any worse internet connection than what I have. <laughs> so if you like, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> That's really good. That sounds real. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, so far, so good. But you know what? If it if it doesn't work out, we'll just have to do it again. <laughs> we'll just keep drinking on Zoom until Thomas blocks us. <laughs> I like this. it's kind of fun i mean you moved far away and we still get to drink wine with you this is awesome yeah and i'm in the future so i can tell you what it's like to drink in the future that's true you are in the future (laughs) yeah where are you thomas i'm uh yeah i'm on the old mission peninsula which is northern michigan and it's just a tiny little finger of land that sticks out into a lake michigan so much more moderated than than most places like for instance you know, everybody's seeing all the headlines of all the snowstorms that have hit and we have about an inch and a half of snow on the ground right now oh okay. that would be I, enough to shut down mcminnville so it would, yeah it'd be like, <laughs> <"They're closed!"> <laughs> i was going to ask you if you were laughing at all the like pictures from oregon of our snowstorm that lasted a day and then it was gone yeah, but you had more snow than us <laughs> that's the funny part that is uh, the difference is we don't shut down. Uh, you know, we don't run out of kale every time it snows. <laughs> you just salt the hell out of the roads and keep oh going. My God, we totally do. It's amazing how quickly snow melts if you put enough salt sand on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, here I am. Perfect. Um, what do you want to start with? You want to start with, did you begin your, uh, your wine uh what do we call it um wine journey wine (laughs) life okay adventure Mm -hmm. did you start your wine fiasco in the anderson valley is that correct yeah i well my very first vintage was at fetzer as an intern which was um almost anderson valley in hopland and then once i graduated yeah started in the anderson valley and then moved to the Southern Hemisphere and then to Oregon, where you know, and then recently here. So basically, if you don't count the Anderson Valley, I've been on fifth parallel my entire winemaking career in one hemisphere or another. Whoa. I like I that. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> because it's interesting, you, you go to the end of the old mission, which is about two miles from my house. There's a lighthouse at the end of the old mission. At the end of the old mission at the lighthouse, there's a sign saying, you are at the 45th parallel. And if you know from driving down Highway 5, right before you get to Salem, you hit that same sign. And I'm like, creepy. <laughs> that is so cool. And when I was down in Central Otago, it's the same thing. It's the 45th parallel there, too. So kind of an interesting little thing that I've done. So now I'm looking at other places like, where could I possibly go? It's also on the 45th on parallel. On the 45th parallel. <laughs> we go from Anderson Valley ish to southern ish yeah (laughs) to the southern hemisphere to willamette valley um what's been the best place to make wine well and why i'm well hard-hitting questions this is no this is no slight to the willamette valley because i love the willamette valley and i love everybody there but i never intended to go to the willamette valley um i was in new zealand i had to renew my visa and uh, I had to come back and do my taxes because all that happens while you're away. 
And I took a harvest job at Ponzi and filling in, they didn't have an assistant winemaker. And I said, I'll fill in for you. I can be your assistant winemaker because I'd already done that. You can pay me harvest wages and you get to, you get, you get to like get through harvest. And I, you know, I get to get enough money to go back to New Zealand. And then they ended up for some stupid reason, thought I did a good job and hired me to be assistant winemaker. And I stayed, I stayed in Oregon, but I never planned on staying in Oregon. And if I had my druthers, I think that I would still be living in New Zealand. I love New Zealand, which is a perfect segue into Screwcast at some point. <laughs> we'll remember that. <laughs> uh, we're, we'll circle back. We'll circle, circle back. back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but you, this is not your first career. No, it's not even my second career. I've, I've, <laughs> a lot, I've had a lot of careers. I've done just about everything that, you know, any weird job, I've done it at one point or another. Hmm. Yeah. So tell us how you end up getting into wine and winemaking, if you would. Well, the short story is um, that I was a home brewer in New York City. And I ended up falling out of love with what I was doing in New York City, which was modern dance and falling in love with fermentation because it enabled me to be creative. I guess the, the other part of that, you know, that without going into like the long story is that I realized when I lived in New York, every time I was out on tour dancing, I loved it. And every time I came back to New York City, I'd be like on the subway for a day all cheery and looking people in the eye and nobody would make eye contact and they're scowling. And, and then it took about a week and I was one of those people. I realized I hated New York and, and, and I just, it wasn't my place. Either you're a New Yorker or you're not. I, I had a tree outside of my kitchen window in my apartment in Queens and I would look out and if it had no leaves, it was winter. And if it had yellow leaves, it was fall. And if it had green leaves, it was not winter or fall. So it was like, that was my connection to, um, to, to nature. And I realized that it was like, I am going through my life. I'm being really creative, but I'm not seeing sunrises. I'm not seeing sunsets. You know, I just was like, I feel disconnected with, from nature. And, and I managed to find a career where I could be connected to nature and be creative. So you're in New York. Then how do you get into the wine world? Well, I left New York. I, um, I, got, a, I got a scholarship to, to go to school. And I ended up getting a scholarship to UC Davis and um, went to UC Davis to check it out. And uh, I mentioned that I was a home brewer. And at this point, UC Davis wasn't the UC Davis we know now. It was still a really great research use institution, but they hadn't built the brand new winery. So I went there. And they were touring me around and telling me how I should be like, you know, oh, you should be so honored. You made it into our, our, you know, our program and it's very difficult and all this and that. And I go into where they're making wine and they're making wine in glass carboys. And I'm looking at that and there are a bunch of them. It's like in this tile that looks like an old lunchroom. You know, it's completely <laughs> tiled and very antiseptic. And there's a bunch of jugs of wine in there. And I'm thinking, this is what I've been doing in my kitchen in Queens. You know, this is no different. And I had a friend that said, you know, you should go to Fresno State and you should check it out because they have a really great program. And I had graduated uh, my first career as a dancer. I graduated from Fresno State and I made a promise to myself that I would never go back to Fresno. Like 
once you once you leave Fresno, you never go back. And I apologize to anybody out there that might be from Fresno, but <laughs> sorry, Fresno. Yeah. Uh, anyway, went to go to Fresno State. I went there and I sat down with the director of the, of the program. And the first thing he said to me is, why do you want to be a part of this program? And I'm sitting there, you know, all cocky because I got into UC Davis, right? And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't want to be a part of this program. I'm only here because somebody suggested it, right? And I and I didn't say it. I just kind of kept my mouth shut. And I was like, well, you know, blah, 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 some bullshit answer. Um, and then, he, and then he's, he started like, Oh, I mentioned, I forgot to mention uh, at UC Davis, they gave me like this photocopied, like, here's your course schedule for the next three years is a, you know, post baccalaureate. And um, it was just like, they just handed, it's something they gave to everybody. Right. And uh, Carlos Mueller sat down and hand wrote like my entire thing. It's like, you want to take from this guy. You don't want to take from this guy. You want to, you know, you want to avoid this. You want to maybe go to summer school so you can get like, and I'm just sitting there going, holy shit. You know, like this is the attention to detail that Davis doesn't have that Fresno State has. And then we walked out of his office across the hallway into like a state of the art 20,000 case winery. And I was like, I've never been in a winery. I've never made wine. I don't know a whole lot about wine, but this is how I learn. I was a dancer. You learn by doing it, not by reading a book on how to do it. So um, I ended up saying hasta la vista, UC Davis, and went to Fresno State. So from Fresno State, I mentioned my first harvest was in Fetzer. I was in school exactly two weeks, and I noticed on the wall there was a posting for an emergency position that somebody had, like, you know, they, they, they dropped out at the last minute at Fetzer. And I thought to myself, you know what? I can go do harvest at Fetzer. If they accept me, uh, I'll know whether I like this whole winemaking gig or not. And if I hate it, I'll go back to dancing. So the moment, and I'm going to stop talking and I'll let you guys talk in a second, but I want to tell you this because this is my favorite, my favorite moment where I realized I was in the wine world and you'll understand this because you've both been in the wine world. My very first day at Fetzer, they were doing a photo shoot for all the winemakers. They had five winemakers. And, you know, it's like, you know, you got to get all the marketing materials. So they got the winemakers to crawl into these tanks of grapes, right? Ice cold tanks of grapes. So you got these people that I've never met before. Like I've never seen the, these you know, fancy winemakers. I'm like this little intern and they're like stripping down into their underwear and getting into these tanks of grapes. And I'm just sitting there going, holy shit, this is winemaking? You know, I want to be a part of this. And then they got out and they had like big wads of grapes inside their underwear. And my job on my very first day of work in the wine industry was to hose grapes out of winemakers' underwear. I knew I had found my people. That was your job. <laughs> Very that's what I told you. Welcome to winemaking. Yep. I'm telling you. <laughs> I told you. I, I have very realistic ideas about what my uh, expectations should be. Uh, <laughs> tell, me, tell me you've not seen anything like that at all. Like, come on. You I'm guys, just surprised. Why didn't you ever bring that to the Willamette Valley? Uh, I feel like I feel like the things that we did at Anime equaled that if not surpassed that in so many ways even though there was never grapes in the underwear i feel like we definitely went above and beyond on so many that's occasions. true <laughs> 
I was going to yeah, say, I thought, Carly and I probably missed the day when you and Andy were shoving grapes in your underwear, but not the case. Mm, but you didn't miss many other days, which were equally <laughs> as shocking and horrifying. <laughs> that is, that's funny. So you uh, were like, all right, grapes in the underwear, I'm sold. I'll go back and finish my studies at Fresno State. I did. Yeah, I went back and finished it. And I think what I learned, like the serious thing that I learned there, you know, I worked with five winemakers. I was the liaison between the winemaking team and the seller. And every day I would sit down and I would like sit, I would go through and I'd taste and smell through the winery. And then I would sit down and have this conversation with winemakers and they all shared tanks. They didn't necessarily share, share programs. So there was an organic program and a reserve program and like the supermarket program that we've all probably had from Fetzer. And I realized early on that there was a place for everything. And there was a philosophy because every different winemaker had a different way of doing things and every way was right. And I think early on, I realized that, you know, you like what you like, there's no one way of making wine. And, you know, they were all equally committed to making really great products, regardless of what the tier was. And I think that was probably the most important thing I could have learned from the very beginning that they don't teach you in school. I mean, think about it. I mean, if you have $8 and you want a really great wine um, and that's all you can afford, somebody put as much work into that $8 wine as the $80 wine. It's just that the grapes may not have been treated the same way in the cellar, but it isn't like, it isn't like the winemaker didn't give a shit. I'm sure there are winemakers that don't give a shit, but, <laughs> but I think that they, eat, they don't give a shit at $80 and I think they don't give a shit at $8. If you don't give a shit, you don't give a shit, you know? I like that. I wrote that down just in case I forgot because I like those quotes. <laughs> but I think you're right. I'm a winemaker. Yeah, quite a quote. Um, all right, cool. Okay, Fresno State, and then where'd you go? After Fresno State, Anderson Valley. I was at a winery called Hush. Oh, I remember oh. this now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> It was yeah. Hush Hush Vineyards, Hush uh, Winery. What is this place? I think it's Hush Vineyards. Yeah. I need to look it up. Family owned winery. I think it was established. Um, you guys will know this story. Established in 1979 and estate fruit. Great stuff. I was the white winemaker um, as the assistant winemaker. And then I, the red winemaker, we had two facilities. Uh, one for white winemaking, one for red winemaking, even though we weren't big. It's just the way the vineyards were split up. All the reds were growing in the Anderson Valley. All the whites were growing right outside of Ukiah in a warmer region. So I lived on the property um, in Ukiah and I had this like entire mile and a half long estate that I lived on that was mine. Basically the story of my life really is making wine in places where there are no other people. Just solo. You you like your grapes, but not necessarily yeah. the people around. <laughs> I was really into dating. I've made all the wrong decisions <laughs> from the very beginning. It's just like, yeah, where will there not be any anybody to date? Yeah, that's me. That's where I want to be. <laughs> that's where I want to be. Yeah. Like you have a mile long vineyard that's yours and nobody else is around. And it, and it bordered on one side, the, the Russian river. So, you know, I was able to go like out and just jump in the river on a hot day. 
<laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. I loved it there. I had to drive a long ways to go on a date because uh, it was like being in the backwoods of Yamhill County, you know? Ding, 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 yeah, ding, there. ding, ding. <laughs> well, okay, so you were the white winemaker, which just the fact that there's a white wine program and a red wine program, that that seems pretty cool. And then did that kind of like develop your love of white wine making? Because I know that you like making your white wine. Or was that like before you already loved making white wine and you're just lucky to land that? No, I think when I, I think when I graduated, I, you know, I think most winemakers when they're like just fresh out of school, they're like, I'm going to make red wine because that's what gets all the attention. And I went there and I fell in love with Sauvignon Blanc um, among other things, but Sauvignon Blanc particularly. And uh, that's what took me to New Zealand. Because New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc to me is like love it or hate it, uh, it's unlike any other Sauvignon Blanc in the world. I mean, it, it is its own beast. And I was like, how is Sauvignon Blanc here so different from Sauvignon Blanc there? And um, and when when the winery, when my whole thing, my whole gig at uh, at Hush blew up, I ended up took it as the opportunity to go to New Zealand. Let's circle back then. <laughs> Yeah, let's look at the most important part of your winemaking career. Tell us. them about how you met us. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> no, it does not need to go there because I know what you're going to say about me. Mm. But this was, if you recall. It can go there, though, because I like it. <laughs> mm. If you recall, we are going to circle back to New Zealand, but you did it all on your own. And you said that was a perfect segue to our study session topic of corks versus screw tops. So the whole versus thing we can just get rid of. Oh, that's not okay. I just meant comparison wise, not one or the yeah, other, no, but like, I feel like I'm just going to start this out by saying, I feel like there's the, the versus thing has been set up by a bunch of marketing. So for instance, when I was going to school, my professor was um, one of, he wrote, you know, textbooks, one of the most regarded winemakers of his time. And he was hired by the cork producers in, in Portugal and Spain to clean up their operations because the amount of TCA they had in, in their facilities was just grotesque. I mean, at that point in time, like this was, this is the late nineties when he, so he probably was there probably in the mid nineties. He was telling these stories about like slabs, giant slabs of cork, oak bark sitting in pools of water. It sounded like, it sounded like cannery row. Um, Steinbeck, right? Yes, but time out. What is TCA? Okay, trichloroanisole. It is basically for most people that don't know what that smell is, it smells like baby carrots. So um, we can circle back to how baby carrots and TCA and all this, I'll tie this all together for you without having to do it. So he went to these facilities, I'm gonna do it right now. Watch, the, watch how this happens. <laughs> Um, so corks, corks are a natural product. They're made from the bark of an oak tree. They peel off the outside layer and they dry it in like, it looks like, it looks like sheets of almost like plywood. And then they, they take it to these factories and they stack it and, and they punch, they punch the pieces. The little cork pieces are actually through the layers of cork. And so these factories that they were, they, they were, you know, they had, they steamed them slightly to make them more malleable. And then they, they, they punched the corks out, but they were storing all this stuff with puddles of water and they were using 
bleach and other cleaners. And so, so back to trichloroanisole, TCA. So you have the mold, you have chlorine. And when you take chlorine in the mold, you put them together, that's the trichloroanisole part. You end up getting TCA, that kind of musty, cardboardy, moldy smell that is TCA and it permeates the cork. So they hired, uh, they, they hired uh, Ken Fugelsang to come in as a wine professor, as a consultant to try to figure out how to clean it all up because the amount of cork taint they were having at this point was just astronomical. So I was, you know, this is something that he told these stories about when I was in school. And then I went to New Zealand and I go to New Zealand and almost a hundred percent of all the wineries there at some point in New Zealand, because you think about when they sell corks, they sell corks to, you know, the best corks go to France because that's, you know, France, Spain, you know, Portugal, because that's where they come from. And then once they get, once they get their share, then it goes to the United States. Cause I think that's the biggest market. And then after the United States, it goes to the rest of the world. So by the time it got to New Zealand, they were getting all the shitty, nasty, awful corks, right? And they were having a huge amount of TCA. And they were just like, like most, uh, well, like Kiwis, they're just, fuck this. You know, Kiwis don't accept anybody's bullshit. <laughs> fuck this. We are not going to get like all your like your nasty, sloppy second corks and our wines are ruined. So they decided basically as an industry, screw caps because screw caps do not in any way give you TCA unless you already have it in your winery, which goes back to the mold plus chlorine thing. If you're cleaning in your winery with chlorine and you have mold, you can infect your entire winery with TCA. So that can happen, but 90% of the time it's in the cork. So if you get a wine that is off or isn't quite right, chances are you have some sort of TCA and there's thresholds, there's a whole bunch of stuff. But anyway, New Zealand said, fuck this shit and um, decided to embrace screw caps because A, they're reliable and B, they were, they were solving the problem of them getting all the shittiest corks from Europe. Well, lo and behold, Australia, New Zealand, kind of they both embraced screw caps. So when they did that, the, the cork market, the cork producers started seeing their, their profit margins started to, to kind of go down because then once they did it, other parts of the world started doing it. The amount of screw caps that were starting to like eat into their profits made the cork producers clean up their operations. They were already trying to, but there wasn't the incentive that it was when they started losing money. So- That'll make it. That'll make anybody change their tune, right? So it's like it's the it's the law of the land, right? It's about losing yeah. profits, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. What they really did is they started a huge multi million dollar ad campaign, and they started marketing. They started mar- they basically attacked their um, their adversaries, and so at one point they're cleaning up, the other point they're attacking their adversaries and promoting what a great product this is. Now, I want to point out, I am not anti-cork. I, I like corks. I don't have a problem with it. I think that we should have more cork in our lives because it's a great product. There's so much rhetoric between cork versus screw cap, which I feel like is just a winemaking choice. You make that choice for a number of reasons. But, um, but, there's, but it's, it, 
you have to realize that so much of what that versus thing is a marketing campaign that's a multi-million dollar targeted campaign by the cork producers. And uh, that's the part that bugs me because it's like they've created a lot of a lot of hoopla where there shouldn't be hoopla. You freaking cork people. Yeah, it shouldn't be hoopla because they're both obviously good options. It's like what you said, like it's up to the winery and the winemaker to make those decisions based on whichever way they want to go. Well, and they've made it a, a thing about sustainability, right? But if you look at like the single most, I guess, carbon intensive product or part of packaging, it's glass. And 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 we've all been there with like with these bottles, these big bottles that are like driving a Corvette. There's no reason to put a wine in that big ass bottle other than you're trying to impress somebody for for something that you're you obviously are lacking, right? A great bottle of, of wine does not need a giant bottle to put it in. Um, I'm not going to say anything about what I'm trying to say. I mean, okay, yes, 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 yes. So anyway, the single, you know, the thing that, that, that the part of packaging that nobody ever talks about is really glass and how we, um, how we have really heavy glass and how most glass isn't recycled. Like they check the list off of all the wonderful things they do that people want to hear. And then they buy glass from China when there's the glass factory, like right down the road. It's just like, because they can shave like 30 cents per bottle off. And it's, you know, it's like, okay, so you're shipping glass, the heaviest product, the heaviest part of the, the packaging across the world. So you can save 30 cents per bottle so you can make a profit, but you talk about being biodynamic and nobody ever talks about that. They do the cork versus screw cap. And that's the thing for me that I, I find it's like, Put whatever you want in your bottle that makes you happy as a winemaking choice, but don't ever turn it into a versus because to me, it's about, I mean, they, they age differently and we can talk about that. They, they, they're different packaging choices, but it's, it's, there's this hoopla that has been created as part of a marketing campaign and everybody has swallowed it hook, line and sinker while not looking at the obvious thing that we should be talking about. That's my little spiel. You got me on here. I'm done. <laughs> no, that's good. That's super interesting because um, we're hoping to chat with a all-female wine making uh, production, Noman Wine, and they do PET bottles. So they took out the glass mm -hmm. and they're doing PET bottles instead because of exactly what you were just talking about. Exactly. It's why that, you know, wine in cans, wine. But I think that one thing you have to be careful about with plastic bottles is, is if, if you're selling something that is, is I guess, um, a, you know, that isn't meant to be something that you really age a long period of time. I don't know what I don't I honestly don't know the, the aging potential of plastic, but I I have heard people say that, you know, they aren't designed really for laying things down forever. Maybe you guys should lay down some Pepsi and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and see so how I, that works out. Is, I do think it is more a more permeable um, packaging choice. I may be wrong. Yeah. Well, uh, they acknowledge the fact that it's not it's not for aging, but they also did a bunch of research to show that, uh, like, show the percentages of people that consume their wine within X amount of time from when they buy right. it. And so why are we shipping them wine in these heavy glass bottles if they're not putting it in a cellar or whatever? They well, want to drink it. Yeah. You're in love. Hallelujah. I'm totally, <laughs> totally for that. Um, for instance, I talked about like we make rosé and 
we have so many people that want to take the rosé to the beach. We have beaches here in Michigan. That's nice. Ah, beaches. I would never get in the water because it looks freezing cold. I've not actually got in it. It might not oh. be, but it looks like I could picture icebergs in it. Still like Oregon without without the sharks. So, um, you know, you can't you can't take glass to the beaches here. So I'm like, why don't we put a third of our rosé into plastic bottles because we know that people want to go to the beach with it anyway. You know, now we've like solved a bunch of problems. And to me, it totally makes sense. I think that I think that they're they're spot on with that kind of decision. We are shipping a lot of stuff around and as we know from shipping, um, it's expensive, it's carbon intensive, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And yet, once again, we go back to that we take that tiny little cork and that lightweight little capsule and we <laughs> We like turn that like these are like you got like some sort of melodrama. It's like you know it's like like these two are waging a war and we don't talk about this this big heavy thing right here. And and if you've ever gone backpacking or camping, you do not want to take this into the woods. No, you have to leave room for your like hair dryer and straightener. Right? I don't. I don't I don't camp, so I don't know. Yeah. yeah, you have to put it into a plastic flask. So now you've not only like now you've left the glass at home right. again. It it goes on perception. And I think that's a huge thing. And I think part of I think part of like trying to, how do you how do you convince people? First of all, I mean, from from both of you being working at NME, you know that trying to convince people to even consider that a screw cap is has the quality like of a cork is a difficult thing. It's getting easier as people see it more often. But imagine trying to try to tell people that a bag in the box or a plastic bottle has the same quality. How do you change perception? Um, especially when there's a lot of people to um, try to show otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, something that people are possibly going to get more into and it will just be the new argument of no this is quality wine it doesn't necessarily need to be in what it used to be in and it doesn't need to come in glass and it doesn't need to come with a cork necessarily so and i think i think a perfect example of that and i don't know whether you've talked to them already but would be a conversation with union wine company i remember going to uh, a portland timbers game and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna pay $10 for a shitty beer, or I can get a can of rosé, you know, well-made rosé, and have it in the stands. And I totally opted for like pounding a rosé. Sure. You know what I mean? It was like it was either that or not so great beer, and I'd much rather have I personally. And it's what the same thing. It's like it's the perfect container for that space because you can't have glass because they're going to throw it at the other team when they score a goal. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, Sarah always uh, chooses on our walks with walktails. She'll choose a nice can of wine. So she's not afraid to go that route. I love that you're drinking in public. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, we have to get through somehow. The pandemic has been rough. <laughs> You can call and- it the pandemic. <laughs> oh, I like that. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of the screw cap for, you know, camping and drive-ins and those kinds of things. But obviously the, um, 
the can brings a whole nother element. And, and um, like we talked about, if people are consuming their wine, you know, in however many days after they buy it or hours or whatever it is, like, why does it need to be in this big glass bottle? It's true. Now, the reason that I said that you were under duress to be here is because when we first asked you to talk about screw caps and corks, you said, no, everybody already knows that it's old. And I just think that we've been finding that to not be the case. But also your point of the verses shouldn't be a thing because it should be a decision. And you did make that decision in in 2007, right? To transition on a me from corks to screw caps. Yes. I made it before that. I made it at Ponzi um, and kind of convinced them to make that transition when I came from New Zealand. And I had a couple of years worth of working with screw caps at Ponzi before I came to, before I, I, I managed to, to do that at, at Anime. And I think the interesting thing to point out at Anime, when, when, I, when I did the very first year in 2007, because I wanted to do screw cap and there was a lot of resistance. And, um, and I said, Let, let's do half and half and see which sells the fastest. And I think that they all were like, oh yeah, oh winemaker. <laughs> you are so funny, you know, we're going to have all this screw cap left over and the court's going to sell out. And uh, lo and behold, the screw cap sold faster. And I think, um, I think for a number of reasons, I think part of it was the price point, you know, which it was, it was at. And I think a, a lot of it is, you know, if you are in the, you know, the restaurant industry, which um, my heart goes out to all of them right now, but um, if you do have a restaurant and we all know about, turnover um, in restaurants, anybody that's worked in the industry, you know that training people is is one of the most difficult parts because you train them. Trying to train people as to what TCA and cork taint and all that, all that is. I mean, I've been in, in restaurants and I've said, this wine is corked. And they're like, yes, it is. <laughs> and, and they thought that meant that the wine has a cork. And I was quite aware that it had a cork, but then you try to explain to your server without making them feel stupid because you never want to do that you know, the whole cork tape thing. And you can just see them going, what the fuck am I getting into? I've got like 12 tables and I got this guy here that's like trying to lecture me on what some cork has some thing that, and you know, the wine have, has a cork, the right. chicken tastes yeah, like chicken. What does this guy want? You like you have a third, a third, like a third eye in the middle of your head <laughs> and they go get their manager and the manager comes back and hopefully the manager has some sort of an understanding of what you're trying to say. And they don't have the time to be there. They have this server that's not dragged them out there. And all you want is a bottle of wine that doesn't taste like baby carrots. And lo and behold, you know, you end up getting it eventually, Right but you put everybody in the weeds and they're just trying their best to be like gracious hosts and do their jobs. And I think getting back to the whole anime thing, I think that when you have a choice between, I have this wine that we have to like do this presentation and possibly you have to train them or you just open it up and pour it and you don't have to worry about it. Generally, if you're that person that doesn't have the time to train a whole bunch of people to do it and you don't have that, you're just like, we're choosing that one because it gets it out on the floor. I don't have to return it. I don't have to do all this. And lo and behold, it sold better than the cork. Is it a better closure? Not necessarily. It's a different closure. It has it has benefits and it has, actually, both of them have differences. I mean, and it's, it's just easier. It's a more um, reproducible closure. Okay. Two things. 
not better the, or worse. <laughs> for the everyday person, can you explain? You've you've said it a few times, and maybe somebody wouldn't know if they didn't know what cork taint is. And then um, do you want to run down the differences for better or worse of the two? Or what do you think? Sure. So cork taint, here's the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it the way that um, it was explained to me by my professor, Ken Fugel, saying, you buy a case of wine in cork and you open up every, you open up all 12 bottles. Chances are about four of them are going to taste alike. And then you're going to have a number of them. You'll be able to group them in different places. Now, some of them may have small amounts of cork taint. Some of them may not. Some of the new like technical corks they make where they grind up all the really crappy stuff and glue it back together and they put it under a vacuum and put hydrogen peroxide under, under a vacuum and it strips away all the cork taint. Those are below threshold levels. It may still have cork taint. We just can't smell it because they're taking all the, you know, I'm not saying you're stamping all the pieces, right? And you end up with all the scraps and you also end up, and this is getting back to what I'm talking about now, corks, if you look at them, they have lots of cracks and flaws and fissures. They're natural. So you're going to have some of them that are aging faster than others. And they're all going to be, they're all going to be different. And you're going to have some of them that are grouped together. Whereas with the screw cap, they're all going to be uniform. They're all like that, that closure is very reproducible. It's why it's on it's why it's on all of your, you know, your soda bottles and all that kind of stuff. If you want to age a wine, more oxygen is going to get in from a cork than from a screw cap. And this gets back to your, your statement before that most people probably don't age a wine. But for those that do, they might want to choose a cork. They might want to choose a synthetic cork. They might want to choose an agglomerated cork. They might want to choose a technical cork. They might like the fact that um, that that a screw cap doesn't doesn't age as quickly, but that's all stuff that they're going to choose. If you're running a restaurant, chances are you're either going to say, you know, people want to hear the sound of cork popping, and that's part of the romance, or they're going to say, we need to have this wine be reproducible and not have to worry about it. Does yeah, I feel yeah, I feel like that answers that um, really well. I mean you're right. Like people love that sound of a cork popping. I mean, every time we would open up a bottle of bubbles, people would cheer right. for that pop, which, you know, it, it's the sound yeah, of a party. Um, that that's the sound. It's kind yes. of like the sound of a pop tart coming out of a toaster. You're like, it's oh. the same. <laughs> it's the same as a pop tart. <laughs> I feel like we have a few pieces. Is there anything else like for maybe like your real big push on why you wanted to switch it over? Was it because at Onomi, I guess I'm saying, uh, is it because you wanted to make it super just like reliable and reproducible and you didn't have to worry about the TCA baby carrots? I, I think uh, yeah. Also like that wet cardboard basement smell. I think that's really easy to answer that. That question I can answer really easily and quickly. Unlike all my other answers. If you don't like my wine, I want you to not like it because of what I did. Right. You know, I, I'm not going to take it personally if you don't like my wine, but I want to know that if I went to all the trouble to make a wine that you're tasting what I did. And if you don't like what I did, then that's fine. I'm cool with that. You know, we all have different tastes, but if I go to all the trouble and I make a wine and 
you don't like it because it's dumbed down by a cork. Cause sometimes when you get cork taint, you don't taste like that moldy part. All it does is kind of, if it's sub, if it's sub threshold, it just dumbs the wine down. How many times you had a wine? You're like, this just doesn't taste like the other one I had. And that's subliminal cork. I mean, that's like sub sub threshold level uh, cork taint. And so I wanted to know that when I put that wine in a bottle, that every bottle would be very similar and, and that you would get the same thing every time. I wanted that reproducibility, but I also wanted at the same time to know that, that if somebody just did not love it, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't something that was like, Oh, well maybe try another bottle. You might like it. It's just like, you don't like my wine. That's cool. There's a winery down the road. <laughs> yeah. Luckily there's a lot of wineries around here. It's interesting when I, when I, um, when I left, when I left uh, Anime, which, as you know, was a difficult decision. I never really wanted to do that. And I came here and I was like, we have all screw caps on all the still wines and all the sparkling wines have uh, crown caps. Nice. So, um, all right. I don't have any corks at all. Um, so that part, like, like check that box off. Uh, mostly estate wines. And then uh, I'm looking forward to you all and a lot of other people to be able to try to taste um, some of the things that I'm making that are the same and yet different. I know that we can certainly do a little, let's do a little side-by-side, Sarah. We can have our uh, Anami Rosé of Pinot Gris and then our two lads Rosé of Pinot Gris. That'll be fun. If you're up for a road trip, you want to come out here and go fat biking or cross-country skiing, or any of the fun things that actually happen in summer, you know, you're always welcome. I have a house 100 feet from Lake Michigan. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's yeah, so cool. Literally out the back door. That'll be a fun adventure for you, finding out all the new Michigan things to do. Yeah, I think it's a lot like being in Oregon. You hang out with your friends and you drink beer when you're allowed to hang out with your friends and drink beer again. I loved this. This was so good and I've missed you. I've missed you guys too. Thank you. We do miss you, Thomas. It's so good to uh, see your face. So nice to talk you. to you. When you see Gabby, give her a huge hug for me and tell her uh, congratulations on getting married. Well, we uh, hope to see you back, but if not, we'll just keep following you uh, from place to place because uh, we we love what you're doing. We love your wine. Obviously, we drink it all the time uh, and our families love your wine. So um, yeah, we'll follow you to wherever you go. That is a promise. Well, that's wonderful. I miss you. Take care. Miss you. Bye. You Bye. too, Thomas. <laughs>